According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in John chapter 15. John 15. We got a good start on it, I thought, last week. And I want to return right back to it here today. John 15. We've had several lessons already in John 14. We're handling this whole section as a unit from chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17, commonly referred to as the upper room discourse. I think it's uh, more accurate to call it the upper room and walk to the garden discourse. Uh, You'll notice at the end of chapter 14, he says, get up, let us go from here. And I believe at that point, they do depart from the upper room and uh, they are walking through the... uh, streets of Jerusalem on their way to the Kidron Valley. They're going to cross that ravine and that's where the Garden of Gethsemane is, uh, is located. So in any event, you can call this the upper room and walk to the garden discourse if you'd like. I, I'm going to probably copyright that here shortly and put it in a book someday. It is episode 23 in the Harmony of the Gospels in the uh, Jesus' final week of work at Jerusalem using the A.T. Robertson Harmony. Uh, episode 23 in Jesus' final week of work at Jerusalem. And uh, here we are. All right, John 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean, or you are already pruned. If you're going to keep the, keep the image, keep the same image. You are already clean, or you are already pruned because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Then the verse that scares a lot of people. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Okay, I'm going to stop there. We're going to take verses 1 through 8 as a segment and then we'll move on. We're going to handle verses 9 through 17 as a segment and then verses 18 through 27 as a segment. So we will break down verse uh, chapter 15 into three parts. Let me find my slide here. There we are. On the walk to the garden, Jesus continued the important church preview, ecclesiastical preview. On the walk to the garden, point seven in the outline. So we had six points of study related to chapter 14, and we're now ready for point seven as we move on into John 15. On the walk to the garden, Jesus continued the important ecclesiastical preview. Remember, as we saw, from the moment Judas Iscariot walked out that door, when he left the upper room to go fetch the soldiers, the moment that door closed, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. And at that moment, from the, uh, the, the moment that he said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, he started to say in those final verses of chapter 13 and then all of chapter 14, the material there relates to the church does not relate to Israel does not relate to anything that they are going to understand in their frame of reference on that night in fact 
their heads are spinning. You notice question after question after question. Uh, everything he says, they got another question, see. And he tells them this. You're not going to understand this until the Helper comes. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of promise. He will guide you into all things and He will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Okay? And so it's very important that we recognize that these chapters, 14, 15, 16, 17, also the final few verses at the end of chapter 13, from the moment Judas Iscariot walks out, uh, the rest of this night is a preview of the coming church. Okay? Now, it's not a complete unfolding, and it can't be. We understand that. Mystery doctrine is not revealed until the Holy Spirit descends on the day of Pentecost. And then the church is born on that day. And then the mystery is unveiled to the apostles and prophets in the early days of the church. But we do have a preview. And that's why I'm going to keep using the term preview. It does not reveal the mystery doctrine, does not violate mystery doctrine in any way, but it previews mystery doctrine. And it's only because you and I have Ephesians, you and I have First uh, Thessalonians, that we can go back and we can see the rapture for what it is in John 14. I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going to come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. We can see the rapture in John 14 only because we have 1 Thessalonians, we have 1 Corinthians 15, we have mystery doctrine unveiled in the church age, and we want to be very clear on that. All right, so moving on to chapter 15 then, the ecclesiastical preview continues, and we find almost like it's creation all over again. It is creation all over again. When the church is birthed, it is a new creation. And what we see here is a corollary. We see here a contrast between Adam and and the church. And so in a point A, as I introduce this, Adam was given a garden to tend. But the true vine and the true worker are Jesus Christ and God the Father. Adam was given a garden to tend. We looked at that last week in Genesis 2, verse 5, verse 15. Adam was given a garden to tend, but the true vine and the true worker are Jesus Christ and God the Father. The uh, vocabulary here, aletheinos, for true, is not a contrast of true versus false. It's a contrast of true versus a foreshadowing. True versus an anticipation, for example. Uh, the, the, the tabernacle wasn't a false temple. Solomon's temple wasn't a false temple. But they were not the true temple. The true temple's in heaven. They were, they were uh, created, they were built on a, on a blueprint as, as a replica of the true temple in heaven. And so this is a use of the term as aletheinos, and it's not, it's not true versus false, it's true versus foreshadowing, or true versus anticipation, or replica, as it were. And so when we're looking at the true vine here, we want to ask ourselves, he says, I am the true vine. So we want to ask ourselves, okay, let's not look for false vines, let's look for what was the foreshadowing of this? What were the, what's the typology of the vine? Where in the Old Testament does the doctrine of vine have application? It has application right off the bat with Adam and Eve given their, their tending responsibilities in the garden. It also, by the way, has application for Israel in their future millennial promised blessings. Jewish people in the coming millennium, it says, every man will sit under his own vine. Every man will sit under his own fig tree. So imagine, you know, this isn't some phony politician somewhere promising a, a chicken in every pot. This is the Christ. This is the Messiah promising a vine and a fig tree for every Jew in the coming millennial kingdom. And uh, something to, uh, for them at least to anticipate and look forward to in the coming blessings there. All right. 
So the true vine and the true worker are Jesus Christ and God the Father. The term vine dresser here is, is simply a worker. And uh, since the context is vine, then there's nothing really wrong with vine dresser as a translation. But it's a worker. And we know that the Father is at work. We know that the church age in which we live is an age in which the Father is at work. We are in Christ, but the Father is the one doing the work. And that's unique to the church age. We can be very thankful for that. Part of our blessings of being New Testament believers instead of Old Testament believers. And we under this an A and a B. And uh, a C. Let's see. No, no. Under this a 1. Here we go. This is the seventh and final I am message. And if you've been with us all this time, I think we've been teaching Life of Christ since the Clinton administration. I mean, it's been a while, okay? 392 lessons now. Uh, but this is the seventh and final I am. So we've taught them all. We've taught them all. And last week I gave you just a, a rapid, rapid 30-minute rundown on, on all seven of these. This is the seventh and final I am message. Remember, I am, I put them all in capital, I am, because this is the covenant language of Yahweh Elohim. This is the Lord God of Israel. And he's, when he says I am, he is making uh, declarations of being I am, of being Yahweh. And many of the I am messages can stand alone as just simply I am. Before Abraham was born, I am, he says. And this is Jesus Christ making the full claims of deity that, that is uh, not, it's, it's undeniable here in the Gospel of John. That's the seventh and final I am message. Do you remember them all? John 6, John 8, three, uh, two of them in John 10. Verses 7 and 9 is the first one. Verses 11 and 14 is the second one. Uh, John 11 is your fifth one. And John 14 is your sixth one. And uh, even if you don't remember all the, the doctrinal applications on it, it's I am the bread in John 6. I am the light in John 8. I am the door in John 10, as well as I am the good shepherd in John 10. I am the resurrection and the life of John 11. Everybody remembers Jesus wept in John 11, but remember that's with Lazarus in the tomb and that's with uh, the Lord encouraging Mary and Martha about uh, resurrection and life. So I am the resurrection and the life. The Anastasia and the Zoe. Okay, if you want to name your daughters that way. John 14 is I am the, resur- I am the way, the truth, and the life. Alright? The Hadas, the Aletheia, and the Zoe. And... Uh, that's where I named my daughters. <laughs> All right, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, here we have something different, though. We've had six I am messages. For the first time ever, we have an I am message that builds on it and says, I am this, and my Father is that. The first time ever. I am this, the vine, and my Father is that. My father is the vine dresser. And then he goes on, he builds on it even more. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Okay? So this seventh final I am is just amazing. And in a way, it, it forms the, the whole point. The whole point is, to, is, the, is the meat of what the seventh message is all about. Uh, it, repeatedly throughout Proverbs, you have, there are six in the, and even seven. Okay? It's the X and the X plus one formula, if you ever study that in, in Hebrew poetry. All right? Six things the Lord hates, even seven that are an abomination to Him. And, it, and then it will start listing them. And the point is, and whether it's six and then seven or three and then four and then, you know, whatever it is, as long as it's X and X plus one, it follows the pattern in the Hebrew Old Testament. That it's all leading up to that final one. The final one is the one that, that makes everything all come together and that's the way you, you drive your, your main application from. 
And so I think it's, it's, it's powerful. I've never read any commentary that ever argued for this. But I have started to suspect that these seven I am messages are doing exactly that. Exactly what we see in the book of Proverbs where there are six, even seven. That the seventh and final I am message is the first and only one to say, I am and my father is, I am and you are. And it, it just so launches the church age, see, 50 days before, before Pentecost. 53 days before Pentecost. Okay, this is, uh, this is Thursday night. We're approaching midnight. The Lord's crucified on Friday. He's, he rises again on Sunday. And then you start counting the weeks to, uh, to Pentecost. All right. So it's the one and only, the first ever and the only I am message to contain my father is and y'all are. Okay, y'all are. Second person plural. I think they were Texans back in the day. They, they, they used phrase like y'all in, uh, in Greek. Okay, so um, I won't take the time to review all the I am's and the different things. We did that a week ago. Let's move on. Um, what's the point here in, in that's being made in these branches? Let's try to keep things simple, can we? All right. Um, much like I think with parables, people try to read too much into a parable. And, and that's not what a parable is designed to do. A parable make, makes it one main point and it tells a story to make that one main point. And, and, and people that try to, to add all these extraneous details into all the nitty gritty and, and so forth are really violating the purpose of a parable. Likewise here, I think, um, you can read too much into it and, and violate the... The, the point that's being made here in the picture that's being drawn. So let's keep it simple. What does it say in verse 2? Every branch in me. Okay, so we're going to reject a whole lot of terrible approaches to this just with that phrase right there. Every branch in me. That's a huge clue. And people that try to say, well, these are unbelievers. Well, wait a minute. They're in Christ. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit... He prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. So we're looking at branches. And the branches are the same. They're, both sides are, are branches. And the branches in Christ. The only difference is that the branches are either bearing fruit or they're not bearing fruit. It's just simple. It's what they're doing or what they're not doing. Are they bearing fruit or are they not bearing fruit? If they're not bearing fruit, the Father's going to take a certain action. If they are bearing fruit, the Father's going to take another action, a different action, so that they can bear more fruit. So the point is, the Father's purpose is for these people to bear fruit. That's why they're saved. You're saved in the good works that are prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. And so the idea of a branch um, not bearing fruit, that's not why God saved them. And so um, He will take action to assure that they do. He will lift them up putting them in position where they can bear fruit. All right, so we'll spark this. Now, these two alternatives spark two alternate actions taken by God the Father. And you have to observe this. That the Father is the worker. He is the vine dresser. And he does one of two things. And in fact, it's kind of a neat play on words. It's Iro and Kothiro. Iro and Kothiro. It doesn't exactly come across in English because in English we have take away or prune and and typically both of those translations will have a footnote in there somewhere if you're reading a new american standard new king james uh one or both of them are going to have a uh, a footnote because they don't like the word prune the word is clean 
And yet, if you're cleaning vines, it's understood that you're pruning is what you're doing. So it's natural. It's it's understood to be pruning. But what's lost in the process of this is that Iro and Kathiro are so very close to each other that the second one is just a compound of the first one. You take the prefix kata and, and you add it in front of Iro. And so you've got Iro and Kathiro. Okay? And what's it's kind of interesting, we, we have the adjective katharos, which is translated as clean and pure. And we're very used to that. That's 26 times in the New Testament. Uh, for, for Kathiro, this is the only place it shows up. So this is our one and only New Testament use of kathairo, the verb to uh, to make clean. Iro is number 142 in the Strong's Concordance, if you use Strong's numbers for your word studies. And Iro has 101 uses, 101 very wild and, and varied uses, uh, very idiomatic uses, because you can lift up your eyes, you can lift up your hands in prayer, you can lift up your voice, you can lift up, um, your heart could be lifted up. Um, Jesus was lifted up on the cross. Okay, He was also lifted up off the cross when uh, when they took him down. So uh, it's very idiomatic to, to lift up. Okay? And, and when you lift something up, oftentimes you lift it up for the purpose of taking it somewhere. And so it has that, again, it's a secondary usage, is to remove or to take away the idea that, well, you've picked it up and you've carried it around. Like when Jesus told the, the man that he healed by the pool, he said, take up your pallet and, and go home. And uh, take up your pallet means, you know, you're not going to be laying here at this pool all day every day from now on. Take it up and go. So... Uh, we're then left with an interpretation issue here. What's happening to these branches? Are they lifted up or are they removed? Okay. Now, and, and there's legitimate disagreement. And I don't mind the debate. And, and, and I'll, I'll discuss this with any you know, person who wants to approach it linguistically. That's great. You want to approach it emotionally? Well, then, you know, <laughs> come back later when you're not so emotional. All right. But but uh, you want to talk about it grammatically, linguistically, theologically. Won- wonderful. Yeah, it, it needs to be discussed. It needs to be discussed because seriously, uh, there's, there's believers terrified they're going to lose their salvation. And in verse six, here's a verse they use and they say, what if I'm a branch that gets thrown in the fire and they're afraid they can lose their salvation? So we want to understand what are these branches, first of all, and is it possible if you're saved to, to be thrown in the fire? And does, does the fire mean hell? And does the fire mean you lose your salvation? What, how, how do all these things work? So they're all worthwhile to discuss. I think you have to discuss them and come to the conclusions you come to. So I'll uh, tell you what my convictions are and then and, and tell you why I have grammatical linguistic reasons for them. And then uh, I'll tell you what the other reasons are that grammatically are problems um, but emotionally, a lot of people still cling to them. And so you just want to know it. And if you're talking to somebody, just understand they may not be approaching this the way that you're approaching it. But the idea of lifting up is very valid because uh, it was a practice in the ancient world and it's still a practice to this day of uh, in, in vines of, of lifting them up, of, of, of stringing them across poles and wires and stringing them across uh, things to get them up out of the dirt, out of the soil uh, and get them where they can, the wind can, uh, can uh, keep them dry and can keep them clean. Different aspects, easier to tend, easier to prune. I don't know about you, but I, I, it's easier to clip things that are up here instead of getting down on your hands and knees and clipping things down there. Okay, Not that I do a lot of that. Um, but you understand how that works. Okay, So lifting up is, is a valid translation. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, my father lifts up. In other words, he takes special notice. He takes special notice. He makes them his own personal project. 
<laughs> okay? And for those who are bearing fruit, maybe they don't need the special notice. Maybe they don't need for his personal hand uh, where he puts them in a, in a preferred position, where he, he positions them in such a way where they actually have an advantage over the other, the other vines. Uh, the ones that are bearing fruit, they still need to be pruned. They still need to be clean. They need to have the dead stuff taken away. Okay? Like the 26 shrubs and trees and bushes and stuff they hauled out of my house the other day. All right? A whole lot of dead stuff. Gone. Okay? So, that's what the Father does because He's the vine dresser. So, these two alternatives spark two alternate actions taken by God the Father. Now, there are believers that are not going to like this. There are believers that are going to tell you that your pastor is ridiculous uh, because they will insist, absolutely insist, their theology demands that God the Father can never be limited. They will say, no, 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 this passage is wrong. You're, you're tying God's hands. You're, you're attacking God's sovereignty. How can God not be in control of what He does? See? So the whole idea that human action is determinative, where God observes the human action, and that determines what He does. Okay? Again, it's a linguistic thing, and it's an emotional thing. It can be determinative, but not controlling, not sovereign. God's not forced to lift up. He chooses to lift up. It's determinative, but not causative. It's not coercive. It does not diminish God's sovereignty. Okay? But people will think it does. And that's why you just have to be aware of that. You have to be careful as you, as you show it. But grammatically, linguistically, and it's... If you, if you understand the point here, then you'll really do well in other applications because whosoever believes. Okay? And, and so is it causative? Is God's sovereignty thwarted because he takes certain actions based upon volitional choices that we make? Okay? I mean, if I go carnal and spend the next month in, in reversionism, right? Or backsliding, that's a good old Baptist term. If, if I just spend the next month just out there, out of fellowship, doing all kinds of terrible things, God's going to discipline me, will He not? <laughs> okay, thank you. But does that mean I've, I've tied His hands of sovereignty? Does that mean that I've forced Him to do what He's going to do, that He's no longer in control? Not at all. Okay. I haven't forced Him to do anything, nor has He forced me to do anything. That's the other corollary to this, that, uh, that God Himself has to be causative. God's the one that sent me on that drunken binge. God's the one that sent me on because His sovereignty controls everything Okay, in certain schools of theology. So I, I appreciate passages like this because to me, I just look at it and I read the plain language. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. So what preceded what? The branch making the choice to not bear fruit. Okay, Or the branch making the choice to bear fruit. Okay, And based on that, God then takes the steps that he takes. Now, the, um, this is the issue here. Now, on kathairo, on uh, cleaning or pruning, um, and, and the adjective katharos, you are already clean. That adjective is what appears here when he says, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. And it's the same word that was used in John 13. So turn back there and let's take a look at it. And this is what we're going to deal with here in point three. 
the eleven are already clean. And they are already pruned. The point is actually not written well at all because it's saying the same thing twice. It's the same word. The eleven are already clean as per the instruction of chapter 13, the foot washing story. And the eleven are also, in this metaphor, they're already pruned. But it's the same word and I believe it's the same reality. It's the same doctrine. It's the same message. He's, the, the traitor's out there fetching the soldiers right now. He, all he has is the eleven. They're all saved. And he tells them this. Okay, So uh, just to remind you, John 13, you'll, you remember this if you were here, or if you studied this before, John 13, he's, he's teaching them foot washing. And at first, Peter doesn't want any part of it. <laughs> uh, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. What's the hereafter? When he gets to heaven? No. The church age. You will understand hereafter. It will be when, when the mystery doctrine is unveiled, when the Holy Spirit descends, when he becomes a New Testament believer instead of an Old Testament believer. All right. You will understand hereafter. And so Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. This, is, uh, this, this cleansing procedure of foot washing is only for believers. An unbeliever can't first John 1 9. An unbeliever can't confess their sins and be restored to fellowship. They've never been in fellowship. They're not in relationship. You cannot be in fellowship until you're first in relationship. See, the bath has to precede the the uh, the total bath has to precede the partial foot and hand uh, hand washing. So Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, and this is so important. He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. That's the point. When you get saved, you are completely clean. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. You are washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. And that's a total bath, 100%. You will go to heaven when you die. You cannot lose that for anything. That's eternal. That's positional. That's your bath in this metaphor. However, you will need occasionally to wash your, your feet. There's going to be the necessity for the earthly defilements because you still walk this earth. You're still a sinner in a fallen world. And so you're going to commit personal sins. And when you do, what's the answer? You don't need to get saved all over again. You need to confess your sins, to be restored to fellowship. In the tabernacle, these were represented by the, 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 the brazen altar out front. That, that pictures the whole burnt offering and salvation. But you get past that, and then what? It's the silver laver. It's the, the washing for, of your feet before you can walk into the, into the holy place. The answer isn't to go back and get saved all over again, to return back to that first altar. No, you pass that first altar. Now you're at the laver. Now at the silver laver is when you, wanna, you want to uh, wash your feet. And the priests were required to do so before they went into the, into the holy place. So everything we understand from the tabernacle and the, and the shadow doctrine there, uh, the typology there, and to, to this metaphor related to foot washing and the, and the bath, uh, none of these guys need a bath. Only one, only Judas is the only one who is not bathed. And so when he says, you are clean, you are all katharos. And here we're translating it clean because the metaphor is bath. It's the same katharos, though, in chapter 15 where we're translating it pruned 
or I think you should translate it pruned, because the metaphor there is agriculture, uh, grapevine. Okay? You are all clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, not all of you are clean. There's still an unbeliever among them. He's still there at this point early in the, in the night. Uh, he takes Passover with them, but not communion. And I think that's significant. When you harmonize the synoptics with John, I think that gets pretty clear. So our term back here then in John 15, I would prefer to render it pruned. There's no reason not to. Um, if you understand that the pruning process is also a cleaning process. Your, uh, your vines are clean when they're pruned and the dead stuff is removed out of there. It just looks cleaner, right? And, uh, and the healthy uh, branches have more space and ability to, uh, to grow because the dead stuff's not in the way. So, every branch that bears fruit, he cleans it, prunes it, so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean. You are already pruned because of the word which I have spoken to you. So, they're already saved. They're already saved. I would also point out this branch in me in my mind is powerful. The whole idea of in me was introduced in chapter 14. Uh, the idea that you're going to abide in me. My Father's going to abide in you. Our love is going to abide in you. Abide in my love. The uh, things that we saw in, uh, in chapter 14 introduced this. The, the whole thing about in me. Glorifying the Father. The Father is glorified in me. It actually was introduced at the end of chapter 13. The... Uh, uh, 13.31, now is the Son of Man glorified and God, that's the Father, is glorified in Him, in the Son. And I highlighted this for you. Now, I want you to really be chewing on this because remember the disciples this night, Peter, James, John, all these guys, they have no clue. They do not have Ephesians like you and I have Ephesians. All right. They do not have the framework of positional truth. They don't have Romans 8. All right. They don't have church age doctrine to understand what it means to be in Christ. The phrase en Christo is, is alien to them. But they will understand it as soon as they are in Christ. <laughs> okay? And then as soon as they are in Christ, when the church begins and all this doctrine starts to make sense to them, the hereafter that Jesus spoke of, then this, this language of in me becomes significant. And, and I think it gets overlooked by all these terrible commentaries that try to say, well, those non-fruit-bearing branches, those have to be, they were simply professing Christians. They had a, a head faith, but not a heart faith. They, they, they professed to be saved, but they weren't really saved. Uh, so um, they, they, were, they were never saved in the first place. That's why they're shown to be what they are, and they're thrown in the fire, and, and so forth. No, I think that damages the language of in me, every branch in me. Uh, don't deny the reality that that branch is in Christ. And, and the only way to be in Christ is what? Is to believe. There's no other way to be in Christ. See. So, uh, I, you know, I don't deny that a professing, you know, a tear amongst the wheat, a professing Christian without the reality. Sure, you could think of them as a branch, but they wouldn't be a branch in me. See. All right. So the eleven are already clean and already pruned. But I repeat myself. They're already saved. They are clean they are pruned, they are saved, and they are being now prepared for the church age. Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, Jesus said. Peter, Peter. Did you say Peter, Peter, or Simon, Simon? Simon, Simon. Satan has per demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. 
All right? These guys have been pruned. They're going to they're gonna launch the church age. They are the initial apostles of the Lamb. All right. Abide. Point four then. Let's deal with abide. Abide is the aorist imperative of meno. Meno. One of my favorite words. In fact, even before I knew Greek, I, this was one of the earliest words I ever learned and I liked it. And we named our Humvee Meno when we went to Desert Storm. Because my first sergeant and I, we wanted to abide. We wanted to abide in Christ. We wanted to abide in His Word. We wanted to abide, remain, dwell. And we wanted to come back to Texas when Desert Storm was done. <laughs> so, we named our Humvee Meno. And then when it died, we got another one and we gave it the same name. <laughs> we said, all right. First Meno's dead, and now we'll get another one. All right. Meno, number 3306. The Strong's Concordance number has 118 New Testament uses. 118. So how long is that going to take us to look at all of them here today? It would take a while, and we won't. We won't look at it. We'll look at a lot of them. We will look at a lot of them. Um, because I think this is where I, proper identification with it is going to help. Uh, it's going to help us to clear away some of the, the problematic interpretations. I think it's going to help us to... Uh, to, to clear aside some of the fears that the uh, Arminian view has, the things you can lose salvation and things like that. But meno, to abide, to remain, to stay. Think of it in terms of a permanence. And even if it's not permanent, think of it in terms of a home dwelling. The fact that this is where you make yourself at home. Uh, a lot of people are not abiding in the Word of God because they're not dwelling in the Word of God. They're not living in the Word of God. So stop and think, where do you live and where do you visit? Okay, And even if you visited it several times, you don't live there. I've been to Kiev, Ukraine five times. I'm fairly comfortable with the place. I, I can find my way around. I can navigate the, 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 the metro system. But I don't speak the language and I'm not at home there. Okay? My son lived there for nine months and he learned the language. And, you know, when, when, you're, when you're living there day after day after day and you're going to sleep and you're waking up and it becomes a part of, of, of where you are, okay? Lived in Germany for two years. This is the idea. And I think believers use the Word of God like a phone book. It's, it's handy for reference when you need it. Like the yellow pages. I've got a plumbing leak, so I'm flipping the plumber. And, and I make a call. And I got the information I needed. I needed the phone number. And when I'm done with it, I don't need it anymore. Close the phone book, put it back on the shelf. Now problem's taken care of. And people use the Bible like that. Right? They're not living in the Word of God. They visit it occasionally. And they typically visit it when... Yeah. <laughs> their life's a wreck. Well, I've tried everything else now. Let's see. Maybe the Bible could help. I'll get a little religion. Maybe, maybe God's got some ideas. So... But they're not living in the Word of God. And it just breaks the heart. And so we try to distinguish between believers and disciples. In other words, you can be regenerate. You can be saved, blood-bought, born again, going to heaven when you die. But you're not a disciple. Why not? Because you're not living in the Word of God. If you abide in my Word, you are truly my disciples. Okay? And so I, I think that's, that's powerful because when you recognize the Great Commission is not go get people saved. The Great Commission is make disciples. And so that means to the unbeliever, you give them the gospel and you want to get them saved. But to the 
believer, the non-disciple believer, he's still a target in the Great Commission. You've got to make him a disciple. Sometimes I wonder, who, what's tougher? <laughs> what's tougher? Giving the gospel to, to the pagan? Or uh, giving the discipleship mandate, that urgency of abiding in the Word of God to the non-disciple believer? who's just living in the world, loving the world, content with things the way they are. In a lot of ways, that's the, that's the, tougher, uh, the tougher road. All right. Before I start giving you all of the uh, impact on abiding, and I'm going to bring it up. I started this for a reason. I'm going to bring up John 15. And uh, let it jump at you visually. I'm visual, and, I, and when I see things visually, then, then uh, it jumps out at me. So I start to see, here it is, abide. And, uh, of course, it's meno, and I'll bring up a uh, word study. But let me also just simply search, bring up all the abiding. Now, this old, tired projector. Can you see the highlights? It's kind of peach-colored. Probably not. I'm guessing not. Okay. Well, talk to the deacons, and we, we need a high-def projector with 3,000 ANSI lumens, all right? Okay. And Joe's going to paint this wall with some goo substance that's going to be reflective on the... All right. There's, there's a tiny little uh, highlight there in the abide. Uh, underneath every single abide has, has that. And it just jumps out at you in... You know, there's three of them there in verse 4. There's another one in verse 5. There's another one in verse 6. There's another one in verse 7. There's two in verse 7. Okay. Another one in verse 9, another one in verse 10. Also, my word love is colored blue. Did you notice that? I did this years ago. Love is blue. Friends are green. I created a... Uh... Oh, friends are empty? There's a friends in verse 13, a friends in verse 14, friends in verse 15. And you can't see the green word friends. Oh, okay. Talk to the deacons. We need that hijack. Anyway, it's kind of cool. A lot of Bibles have words of Christ in red. My Bible has agape in blue, phileo in red, in, uh, in green. And so we've got some more color coding going through, going through the Bible here. Anyway, if this jumps out at you, you can uh, see it visually. You can also graph your results, and sometimes this helps to see, uh, you know, which book, if you, if you want to study abiding, if you want to study meno, uh, it's not Matthew, Mark, and Luke, okay? Matthew, Mark, and Luke combined times five might uh, might give you what you're looking at here in John. Likewise, um, the epistles, first John and second John. Okay, so that's the uh, that's the uh, bar chart. And particularly when you break it down by proportion. Let's take a look at chapters. You break down John by chapter and you realize chapter 15 is where you want to be. But also, 1 John 2, 1 John 3, 1 John 4, 2 John has two uses. There's a concentration of it there. And um, make it uh, hits in the book as a proportion. 1 John and 2 John are off the charts, even more than the Gospel, only because they're so short. They're so short. 
and have all the uses that they have and the short number of verses that they have really makes it a, a concentrated concentrated proportion. You like pie charts better than bar charts? Okay, You can play with this stuff all day. But I find it helpful because I'm visual. I can look at a chart and it's going to jump out at me and I'm going to learn more in 30 seconds looking at a chart than I would look at in an hour of going verse by verse by verse by verse. And maybe after an hour of that, I'd start to say, you know, a lot of these are in John. It would finally sink into even even my mind. But you put it on a picture and then it, uh, it becomes undeniable. Okay, so that's what we're looking at. But first, before we start looking at all of those, because many of them are just um, um, kind of mundane, kind of, you know, just abide, remain, dwell, stay in a house. Okay, can I stay with you tonight? Yeah, I, I would use meno as, as the verb. There's some compounds and some related forms. But some of the more significant uses, I do want to bring one particular, and that's John 6.56, because we, we don't just simply have. It's not just an imperative to abide in me. It's not just simply an imperative to abide in me. People say it is, because it says abide in me. All right, that's an that's a aorist imperative. Okay? And maybe they, they turn it to say, is it a present imperative? Is it an aorist imperative? Well, but it doesn't stop with abide in me. It says abide in me and I in you. It adds the I in you, the cago in humin, whatever it is. The I in you gets attached to the abide in me. So what's that about? And what makes that different? Okay? Because for the rest of this is if you abide in me, he who abides in me, the one who abides in me, the one who does not abide in me. And... And the idea that this is just a flat-out command, abide in me. Abide in me. Now, we do have the flat-out command in verse 9, abide in my love. Abide in my love. Now, that is an unmistakable command, and there's nothing attached to it like the and I in you that's attached to the abide in me. So, let's be cautious and ask ourselves, is this truly a command? Are we, are we, uh, are we ordering these 11 believing disciples to get saved? Are we, are we, or is there something different here? And have we seen this already? Is there a definition at work in the expression abide in me and I in you? And there actually is. And that's why I asked you to turn back to John 6, 56, uh, where you will notice that this is actually a technical term, John 6, 56. You're going to see that this expression abide in me and I in you is a description of Mystery doctrine that he can't reveal yet. But the reality here, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Same syntax. This is where it's not necessarily vocabulary that solves our issues. It's the, it's the syntax. It's the way that the, the grammar puts it together. So he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood. No, not cannibalism. This is a metaphor. All right. The expression to eat and drink, referencing faith, to believe. Okay. In other words, believing in Christ, receiving eternal life, getting saved. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. In other words, it's a definition. This expression, abide in me and I in you, is a term that references being saved. That by faith you have come to Christ. You have eaten his flesh. You have drunk his blood. You have believed. Just uh, 
spot this here. You, you know, we, we taught this back in the day. This is the I am the bread of heaven. This is the first of the I am messages. And notice the bookend nature of this. The very first of the I am messages introduced the abide in me and I in you. The very last of the I am messages now has this abide in me and I in you. And so um, and they were the, the crowds <laughs> the crowds, all they wanted was just do another miracle, right? He'd fed 5,000 the night before, and so they, they were hounding him the next morning. Do it again. Do it again, right? And he says, you're not coming to me because of the miracle or you want teaching. You just want your bellies filled. All right. In any event, as long as we're clear on this, the, the issue is believe. He who believes has eternal life. The um, The whole metaphor of eating equals believing equals drinking equals believing equals by the way coming to christ coming to christ it's not an expression to be worried about if you want something uh pretty simple how about verse 35 I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. You see how this is used? This is just, it's just a metaphor. It's all it is. Eating and drinking, flesh and blood, those are images. The reality is Christ and faith in Christ. It's the only provision for eternal life. And it's equivalent expression to coming to me. He who comes to me. It equals believing. Believing. All right, so that might help you there. John 6, 35 and 36, and then um, John 6, 56, with the recognition that he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. So, if, if it is a command in John 15, if Jesus is saying, abide in me, well then how do you do that? You eat his flesh and drink his blood. Yeah, you get saved. If that's, if that's truly a command, abide in me and I in you, if he's ordering them to do something they've never done before, then what he's telling them is to get saved. Because he's already defined it in the first I am message. He already defined that he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood is the one who abides in me and I in him. Okay. It's also a bit nonsensical. And sometimes it's best to discuss grammatical conundrums in a non-grammatical way. I think sometimes Greek scholars get caught up in their Greek and forget English and forget real life. You know, if, I, if I'm ordering you to do something, and then I'm, am I ordering myself to do something? Abide in me. If I stop there, then I'm telling you to do something. But if I say, abide in me and I in you, well, am I, am I commanding myself? Abide in me. And if you do that, then I'll abide in you. Am I making that conditional? Why is abide in me and I in you a unit in terms of an imperative? Is Jesus ordering himself to abide in them? We take the second part of that as, as a command for Jesus. How do we handle that second part of that? Okay. It's best if we keep them together as a unit and recognize that we're dealing here with a definition of believers. Abide in me and I in you. All right. Abide is the aorist imperative. And so there it is. In other words, they're already clean. They're already pruned. They're already doing this. So they should conduct their walk in a manner that conforms to that reality. It's, it's, I, I think it's, it's identical to what Paul says in Romans. He says, you've died to sin. Walk that way. <laughs> you've been buried with Christ. You've been raised with Christ to walk in the newness of life. So consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God. 
Why can you consider yourself to be dead to sin but alive to God? Because you are dead to sin and alive to God. You can consider yourself that way because it's true. It's the reality. And that's the same thing here with this abide in me and I in you. It's the reality for what it is. You're saved. Walk like it. Walk like it. Now for the rest of these abiding... um, This will save us all our page flipping. Can we do this? Okay. F11. There's only three in Matthew. Matthew 10, uh, when he sends out his disciples, he says, when you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and stay at his house until you leave that city. He was sending his disciples out two by two. You remember that? And then... um, when he talks about uh, the miracles done in Tyre and Sidon and the miracles done in Capernaum and if they've been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, which had been occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. It would have remained until this day. It would have endured. It would have remained. It would still be dwelling on this day. There would still be Sodomites in the world today. Um, in Matthew 26, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he wants them to pray with him. They keep falling asleep. Every time he goes out there, he shows up and they keep sleeping. Uh, Mark and Luke are very similar. When you stay in a house, stay there until you leave town. Uh, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain there and keep watch. So Mark has two of the three examples that Matthew has. Luke uh, has a little bit more. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months uh, when they were both pregnant there together the uh, the old woman and the and the virgin um, Luke 827 uh, with respect to um, legion okay this maniac uh, not wearing any clothing for a long time was not living in a house but in the tombs okay that's where he was living these days and then uh, the use is similar to what we've seen in uh, Matthew and Mark Luke 19.5, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. That's uh, the Lord's words to Zacchaeus up there in the tree. Hurry and come down, today I must stay in your house. All right, and then all the ones in, uh, in John. Holy Spirit descended out, as, out of heaven as a dove, and he remained upon him. Menno, abide. Okay, abide. Um, and he'd been warned about that. The one whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, he is the one. Uh, and then uh, Andrew and Peter and these guys start following him, saying, Lord, where are you staying? So he told them where they were staying, and they stayed with him that day. And uh, Mary and his brothers and disciples, they stayed there a few days when he first sets up his headquarters in Capernaum in John chapter 2. John chapter 3, verse 36. You can all quote it, right? He who has the Son has eternal life. He who does not have the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now keep in mind, that's present tense. That's right here. That's not right now. That's the present wrath. That's not he's going to go to hell someday and then he'll come under God's wrath. He's already under God's wrath. He was born in Adam. The lost estate is under God's wrath by default. John 4.40, they were asking him to stay with them and he stayed there two days. Um, 
minnow in both cases. Uh, John 5.38, you do not have his word abiding in you. So we're going to start to see the word abides in us and we abide in the word. It goes both directions. Christ abides in us and we abide in Christ. It goes both directions. All right. Mutual reciprocal is a phrase I like to use. And so we want, we want to be living in the Word of God. We also want the Word of God to be living in us. It's got to be alive in us. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. It's not a dead thing. You're not memorizing cold, dead facts. Okay, you know. Uh, not memorizing what was uh, Ty Cobb's batting average in 1924. Okay, I used to know that. There are people who, who do know that. And they can just give it to you right off the top of their head because their mind dwells in baseball statistics. That's where they live. And where your heart is, I mean, that's, you know, you can tell very quickly where a person dwells, where their heart is, what's on their mind. We want the Word of God to be dwelling richly within us. We want to be dwelling in the Word of God. We want to be in the Word daily. We want to be, uh, you know, if I ask a person, I say, hey, you know, what scriptures were you in this morning? Oh, well, um, hmm, um, well, hmm. I, I missed this morning. I was going to get to it this afternoon. I was going to do that right after lunch. Oh, okay. I believe you because love believes all things. Oh, I believe you. Great. Um, so what passage did you read yesterday? <laughs> oh, well, um, um, you learn very quickly. They're not in the Word. Not on a daily basis. Not on a regular basis. I mean, they, they, they know where their Bible is. They, they bring it to church with them when they come on Sundays. But they're not abiding in the Word of God. See, they have that phone book mentality or hotel room mentality, right? That's not where you live. You, you stay there for the night, but you don't unpack very much or you don't really kind of get settled in. You don't make yourself at home because you're not at home. You're in a hotel room. And in the morning, you're going to throw everything back in the suitcase and you're going to go. You're gone. You're not going back there again. The Word of God is supposed to be a home, not a hotel room. Live there. Make yourself at home. Be comfortable there. Be comfortable there. Because that's where you belong. So you do not have his words abiding in you, for you do not believe him. See, faith is necessary. And then uh, abiding in the word. Um, John six twenty seven. do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which menos, the food which endures, abides, remains to eternal life. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And that's an important use, as I said already, because not only is it meno, the vocabulary that we have today, but it also has the reciprocal. It has the abide in me and I in you. That helps to define what we're talking about here in John 15. So he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. John 7, having said these things to him, he stayed in Galilee. John 8:31. John 8:31. Turn there. This is one that's worth turning to. The benefit of having the snippet view is it jogs your memory and you, and you say, oh, yeah, 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 that's the one I want to that's the one I want to camp on for a little bit. John eight thirty one. This is where you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. I want to ask if you've ever used that as a gospel message. Don't. If you've done it before, stop. Don't do it again. This is a message to believers. Jesus was saying to those Jews who believed in him, <laughs> okay, they're already saved. But they need to be renewed in the spirit of their mind. They need to be delivered, not from the penalty, eternal penalty of sin. They've got that. They have eternal life. They're not going to go to hell. They've got that. But they do need continued deliverance, and it's the ongoing deliverance in time, the experiential salvation. In, in other words, 
not saved from the penalty of sin, but saved from the power of sin. They need to be renewed in their minds so that they can be transformed and they can be taking off that old man and his lust. They can be putting on the new man, which is being renewed. Because uh, sure, they're slaves. They're slaves of sin. They still have the old sin patterns, processes. Nothing happened to their bodies. They got saved. Their soul was redeemed. Their human spirit was made alive. They were quickened or, or made alive in the human spirit. But not one thing happened to their body. They still have the same body they had as unbelievers. So do you. Same body you had when, before you were saved. You don't get the new body till you cast off this one. We understand that. It's that no good thing. Again, Romans 7, we've been studying this. No good thing that dwells within you. You've got you to gotta be renewed. You've got to be transformed. You've got to have the Word of God take hold. You've got to become disciples. And if you continue in my Word, if you abide in my Word, then you are truly disciples of mine. If you continue in my Word. And how many believers do that? How many believers don't? Well, the ones that don't aren't going to bear any fruit. And so the ones that don't bear any fruit are going to be lifted up. Okay? And that's what we're going to be... That's what we are looking at here in John 15. And you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. I know believers that are just as much slaves as unbelievers. Okay? Just a little cricket. Don't worry about it. Man, we're studying the Word of God. This is alive and eternal. Don't be distracted by a little cricket. I'm thankful my mom's not here because, man, if she wasn't already in the hospital, that would have put her in the hospital. All right. <laughs> but think about how many believers you know are not abiding in the Word of God. They're not truly disciples. They're not bearing fruit. Okay? All right. So that's, that's an important one there. Back to this again. The humility of a deacon, I tell you, he just gets on his knees, picks up bugs. All right. So that's John 8. If you continue in my word, you are truly disciples of mine. Um, all right. The rest of these, uh, John 11, when he heard that he was sick, he then minnowed two days longer in the place where he was. Think about that. The one, the disciple of human love is sick. Hurry, come. Oh, he's sick? I better stay here two more days. Because okay? he has to die. He has to die. It's going to result in greater glory for God the Father. Uh, came into a city called Ephraim. There he stayed with his disciples. John 12. Um, unless the grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. It remains alone. And think about that. Unless the grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. How do you get more wheat? How do you get more of anything agricultural? You've got to plant the seed for something else to grow. Something has to go into the dirt. Okay, Jesus had to go into the dirt. If you understand, he didn't have to for himself, but he would have remained alone. Understand that? He was perfect. He was, he was entitled to the glories of heaven. He could have ascended to the throne of heaven and had every right to be there in sinless perfection, but he would have been there alone. And so it was pleasing for the Father in perfecting the author of our salvation. That he must suffer, see, that he might bring many sons to glory. So the son's not alone. The son was, I mean, the father was was pleased with the son from all eternity past, but he was alone in that. He and the Spirit. So that's why we have creation, angels and humans. We're 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 created to share in the love that the Father has for the Son. You want more on that? We've got the plan of God reader out there in the hallway. All right. So that's uh, the thing there. The weed has to die. 
though it won't abide alone, it won't remain alone. Of course, they've got their confusion. We've heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And they're right. The Christ is going to remain forever. He's going to rule on the throne of David for all eternity. So how can you keep saying the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? And they've got questions about that. Legitimate questions. If only they weren't so prideful and hostile, they might have actually learned something and uh, been humble to listen to his reply. John fourteen ten. I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Now this uh, I hope we pay attention to because um, Jesus is the forerunner. The Father was working in Christ. The Father was abiding in Christ. And, and the, the walk that Jesus walked was the example for us to imitate. He got to live the Christian way of life before there was the church. In some very real ways. He's the prototype for the church age. All right. It's 1101 already. How does this happen? Last week I got caught at 1105. This week I get caught at 1101. I, I glance at it thinking that it's 1030. We still have half the class in front of us. All right. Well, abide is the aorist imperative of meno, to abide and to, sit and to stay. But notice, especially in comparison with John 6.56, he's not ordering believers to get saved again. They're already clean. They're already pruned. They're already saved. But he is reminding them, abide in me and I in you. As believers, this is what the new Christian way of life is all about. And we'll show you that when we see this fruit bearing next week. Because it's bearing much fruit that glorifies the Father. And the, uh, the do-nothings that are fire-bound... And, uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll pick up on this again next Wednesday, Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, I thank You for Your faithfulness. I thank You for the blessings that we have to abide in Christ, to abide in You, for Your love to abide in us, for Your words to abide in us. Father, uh, I pray that uh, the believers here of Austin Bible Church would be motivated and equipped and challenged to, uh, to make daily application of this. That, Father, our greatest provision that we have is, is our completed canon of Scripture and the, and the blessings that we have in this nation. How wealthy, how prosperous. How, Father, I, there's believers in other countries that share a Bible. One Bible for the entire church and the, the pastor takes it home with him on Sunday so he can prepare during the week for the next Sunday. And Father, uh, here we have, we've got multiple Bibles in every home. And Father, we've been given much. Much is required. Um, motivate us, Father. You're the one that's at work in and through us, to will and to do of your good pleasure. So, Father, start working in our will to abide in your word day by day, moment by moment, to will and to do. Thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ, most precious and holy name. Amen.